This episode is brought to you by Roundtable Group, the experts on experts. We've been connecting attorneys with experts for over 25 years. Find out more at roundtablegroup.com. Hello and welcome to Discussions at the Roundtable. I'm your host, Michelle Lux. Today, my guest is Jim O'Reilly. He's a professor of public health, Department of Environmental Health, College of Medicine at the University of Cincinnati. Jim, if you could give me an introduction to what it is that you do and how you started out as an expert witness. Thank you. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk. For me, the highlight of my long career since 1974 uh, came at 9.15 a.m. on Monday, March 20th, 2000, when the phone rang. And the person at the other end said, Professor, this is John Doe from the Washington Post. What do you think of the United States Supreme Court calling you the expert on FDA law? And I laughed and said, is this a gag? Who is doing this? He said, no, it's not a gag. I said, well, when did the Supreme Court say that? He said, 15 minutes ago. I said, in that case, I certainly agree. Thank you very much. And I hung up, went online, and the Supreme Court had just issued its opinion at nine o'clock saying, um, the experts have written that. And then they quoted a chunk of my, I guess, volume two of my textbook on food and drug law. Well, when you're called an expert by the Supreme Court, that's pretty cool. Nine days later, I was appearing as an expert in West Virginia, in the Kanawha County Superior Court. And the other side stood up and said, well, your honor, this man's not an expert. We moved to strike. And the judge said, well, if he's an expert in the United States Supreme Court, he's an expert in the Kanawha County Court of West Virginia, denied. And I thought, well, there are advantages to this, aren't there? Now, I've done a lot of expert witnessing. I literally just came back at 225 from depositing an expert witness check. Uh, it's always nice to get a large check. Um, and so the opportunity is there if you truly are an expert, if you prepared well, and if you've served the needs of the client well, the opportunity is there. But you must avoid certain basic mistakes. One of them is assuming that the Supreme Court is going to call you the expert. It doesn't happen every day. And when it happens, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. So be attentive to how the limitations are done. Next, be careful in how you phrase your opinion so that you're within the bulk of most of the persons on your side, you're not taking a radical position that would be, you'd be lonely with that radical position. Try to be as um, middle of the road, as it were, to definitely have uh, good foundational support for what you want to have. And then next, recognize that the opposing side is going to think you're the dumbest creature ever, ever. When the other side insults you in that way, just let it ride. You're not there for a battle. You're there for presenting your best opinion. And the other side may have a very strong, will have a very strong opinion, but they shouldn't get personal 
and they shouldn't attack. But if they do, just say, fine. Um, many years ago, I was a policeman in New York. And um, quite often, the persons with whom I interacted had um, strong feelings, which they expressed. Um, I'm not going to repeat what they called me, but that's the way it is. Recognize that you have an opinion that's grounded upon the data and the legal issues for which you have prepared. The individual who's opposing you might do everything she or he wants to do to attack your opinion. But recognize that by being straight, consistent, and well-grounded, you'll get much more recognition from the judge. I'm also an arbitrator, and I did an arbitration involving, um, I forget the teachers union or something like that. Uh, and um, during the course of my time in that session, the actually the, the person representing the teachers union said to me, well, I want the mediator to know these girls are working really hard. These girls have done everything they can. Well, I said, excuse me, why don't you and I go outside? And he was befuddled. And he and I went out in the corridor. I said, excuse me, you're representing the teachers. They're not these girls. They are professionals. And so you must act like a professional when you're in my arbitration context, similar to being in, in a judge's courtroom. Be professional even if you disagree with the content, be professional, it will go a lot farther with the neutral, in my case, the arbitrator, than it would be otherwise. So those are the basics that I wanted to, to bring up first. Yeah. Well, you did bring up a point um, during the cross-examination piece, how you, know, you are meant to almost be put on the defense, right? And they're trying to rattle you and whatnot. Um, it sounds like you have excellent background, of course, being law enforcement, you're used to kind of controversy, keeping your cool, but have you found that the attorneys that hire you, do they prepare you for the cross-examination? Is that part of the steps of being an expert witness is that conversation? Yes, she or he knows their case inside and out. You know a part of the law or a part of the factual data you know that part. You're not going to be an expert in all the aspects that bring him or her to the, the forum. You're not going to be an expert in that. But you're going to be able to say, I have no opinion on that aspect. But as to the work that I've presented in my uh, written submission, I feel strongly that X and Y and Z when you are organizing all the information that you're doing on your case, is there any project management tips or is there things that you do to help prepare yourself before either the deposition or getting into testimony? Are there some just easy things that you could put into place as an expert? Yes. The person with whom you're working has invested his or her time for many hours to get to the point of the hearing or the trial. Respect that and assume that what they've done is a legitimate, uh, well-based, 
well-rounded position, assume that and build on from there. Don't assume that the person who has engaged you doesn't know anything about XYZ and you are the world's expert on XYZ. Respect the fact that they've got a point of view and you're listening to what they're wanting to say and recognizing that you could go this far, but not so far. You're not going to be lying. You're not going to be cheating. You're not going to be doing anything bad, but you're recognizing that they have a prior deep awareness of the significance of the issues in your case. When that initial interview happens and you get a phone call that says, you know, professor, we would like to consider you as an expert. Here are the basic details. What are questions that you have for them to determine if you are the right fit that matter in that case? I'd like to know what the significance is of their client's case informing the precedents in this topical area for years to come. I am very aware, well, my first book in 1976 was rejected four times by four publishers, all of whom said, nobody cares about privacy. Who's ever gonna buy a book on privacy? That book was a bestseller. It led the publisher to say, wow, what else can you do for us? And I went on to the FDA book and then the next book and the next book. Now I've done 56 books. I'm waiting for the committee's decision by uh, Thomson Reuters West on my 57th book. Uh, I am very aware that individuals may not have the same point of view that I do on the topical area. And so in my first conversation with them, as a potential expert, I want to see if we are simpatico, are we understanding each other? If we're not, I'm not prepared to, I'm not prepared to put my reputation uh, on the line uh, just to get from here to where they want to go. I rather would say, let's talk about it. If your client's malpractice case turns upon whether a physician should do this, or should not do that, I'd be very interested in working with others who have been in that kind of surgery to say, what is the proper method of doing this? What is the standard method of doing this, et cetera? I'd like to do that rather than making it up as I go along. Yes, all very good points on you know that initial interview, just understanding if that relationship will work. Um, now, as you, let's just say you're retained and you're moving forward, are there special terms in your contract or anything that you put into place so that it's known up front, like how many hours you're working on X amount of documents or what's expected from you? That's going to vary widely depending on what the, the topic is. Because my work is in the food and drug law field, I, I can't say there's one particular area. I can say there are 25 subspecialties, any one of which could be called about. Any other stories about being an expert witness that you would like to share? Uh, for me, as I mentioned uh, in our earlier discussion, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, did it all, saying that I was their expert in food and drug law. That made a huge difference in all of my subsequent uh, interactions. 
My biggest uh, opportunity, of course, is in the field of medical devices because I am the last survivor of the group that negotiated the 1975-76 medical device amendments. The approvals of products that are medical devices are through a, a provision called Section 510K, and I was part of the negotiation of that. So when we get into a discussion in an expert role of a medical device, I can easily say, yes, I understand it because I helped to write it, and the people who were with me at that time are no longer alive, um, and that gives me somewhat of an opportunity. I've also had the opportunity as an expert to go to Europe and to interact with Europeans. Uh, I was an advisor uh, in a special project for the uh, Deputy Secretary General of the European Union. That was interesting because they have 23 countries. And so our meetings in Brussels would be between a small number of, I think, two or three Americans and the Deputy Secretary General, and then typically 18 to 20 members from different countries, Spain and Greece and so on and so forth. That gives you a very good dimension of what's occurring because you're explaining to them a way in which they could do things differently than they had been. And we could bring back to our group, the American Bar Association, we could bring back to our group, here's how we could find a, a better way of doing this uh, compared to what we've been doing. So interaction, uh, cross fertilization of ideas is one of the fun things about being on the international side. More frequently, my advice has been in the role of technical, legal, and regulatory expert uh, on a product injury case. And in the product injury case, we're giving advice about why that particular injury would or would not have been in a violation of a regulatory requirement. So that's what we're doing. It's all very fascinating, especially when you go over to um, outside the United States court system. I mean, it's definitely going to have maybe just a little bit more different laws or approaches to understanding the law. Did you find that, you know, was there any help along the way when you are maybe giving testimony to Europe or was it more of like they came to you to understand how to regulate? They came to the American Bar Association for the subject of what better regulation, better regulation was the title of what they were doing on. I was the chair of the 8,000 member American Bar Association section of administrative law and regulatory practice. And so I could say to them credibly, this is the way the US does it. These are some of the possible ways in which you could consider doing it. And these are some of the benefits you receive when you integrate multiple perspectives uh, into a symbol, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't say relatively simple, uh, into a system that makes a difference. That's what we were trying to get. And that has to be just a, just a nice way to experience as, as an expert witness, making change and seeing it happen on such a global scale, not just, you know, within your own state or own community on a larger impact. Is it definitely something you would do over again if you had the chance? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I would do more of it. Uh, a lot of it, um, came from my work as a labor arbitrator 
and um, labor tends to be very uh, combative. And so I learned I don't feel as comfortable giving combative people uh, advice. I want them to cool down before we get into the discussion of what's a better way to do it. Learning in the labor, learning in the labor arbitration uh, side occasionally gives you um, very disruptive situations. Years ago, maybe six years ago, there was a football player for the Baltimore Ravens who got on an elevator with his girlfriend and in light of the, the camera that was on the elevator, he punched her, punched her out, knocked her down to the floor. And then the elevator door opens and he walks out and she's lying on the floor. It was an awful, awful situation. I was teaching labor arbitration. And so in the labor arbitration context, I said to the students, okay, you're gonna represent the National Football League. You're gonna represent the Baltimore Ravens and you're gonna represent this crazy guy. <laughs> Excuse me. Because we're giving you this very unpalatable situation, you've got to figure out how am I going to defend this person? What's the right way to represent him? One of the students got very, very angry. She said, no, you can't require me to do this. Uh, I think it's terrible that he did it. And, and I would never, ever represent him. I said, well, I can hear what you're saying. I recognize that as a woman, of course, you're offended by the brutality of the male. But oftentimes you as a recipient of a legal assignment will have to do something that you might personally not feel comfortable with, but you're going to have to articulate what's the best way to construe the terms of the contract between the Baltimore Ravens and this person and between the Baltimore Ravens and the National Football League. How are you going to construe that in a way that gets to a reasonable solution. None of us liked what he did to the girlfriend. None of us liked it. But we have to think rationally as arbitrators, what's the solution that does justice to her as well as justice to him? That student didn't like it at all, <laughs> made a big stink about it. That's the risk you take when you're teaching. Some of the students won't like what you're, what you're doing. I think it's important that students, at least in the, in the classroom setting, be put into a situation where they might feel personally uncomfortable, but when they've got to reason through what is it that would be done to reach an agreement. And that's why that's important. In the trial situation, it's different, of course, because in the trial situation, you're representing um, a neutrality and the uh, parties in that uh, situation are arguing typically over money. Should she get X dollars? Should he get X dollars? Should the company be required to pay X dollars? Those are all issues that will involve uh, quantification of the merits of the offense and how much should that offense lead to a payment. When you're an expert witness in that circumstance, 
your job is not to come up with the dollar amount, but it's to say, these are the elements of the appropriate outcome, the appropriate settlement. And then the dollar amounts are for others, typically a civil jury. And to your statement, you know, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? And it's not always going to be the situation you find yourself in, but it's really a good exercise to get through to kind of know how you're going to handle those situations in the future. Well, thank you, Jim. I really appreciate your time and coming on the show. I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Discussions at Roundtable. Our show notes are available on our website, roundtablegroup.com. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening apps. 